Good afternoon here on Transcoastal Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. It's 4 o'clock p.m. and the second Tuesday of the month, that is the ETA for Boat Talk. Usually a call-in boating show, but things being as they are, we are staying out of the WERU studio until we get the green flag sometime next year. So no phone calls can be taken today. So for now, we are cobbling together pre-recorded shows. If you have something to offer, we can record by phone or Zoom. Just email us at boattalk at gmail.com. The bulk of this month's show will be a rerun of an old show from about eight years ago. But first, I was expecting to talk about the ruling from NOAA about vertical fishing lines and whale protection. I called whale guy Zach Cliver to get the latest news, and it turns out to be no news again. NOAA has put off making the announcement since last spring, and it's still off. But Zach did attend another whale-related meeting, as he reports. Um, I'm Zach Kyber. I'm with Blue Planet Strategies, uh, which is a uh, conservation and science organization dedicated to uh, helping uh, conserve the oceans. And uh, I recently attended the uh, Ropeless Consortium, uh, which was held virtually. It was a one-day conference, and there were people from Canada to California to all over the world that were there to discuss um, the, the emerging technology of ropeless uh, fishing. And it was a very successful conference. Uh, I think there was a, a broad consensus that things had moved very quickly in the last year. People were very impressed by how much testing was being done and how how uh, how quickly things had advanced. Um, so I was part of test, uh, testing uh, ropeless gear here in Maine, and we did 60 deployments of different fishing gear systems. Uh, in Frenchman Bay and out around Mount Desert Rock, and we had uh, we had great success. Uh, there were fishermen up in Canada that had been testing uh, uh, gear there, and had very good success. There's a lot of um, offshore gear testing now, testing in Massachusetts, Georgia, Scotland, California. Is uh, the big news there is that on November 1st they uh, legalized ropeless fishing so that now uh, you can move forward with with uh, testing different ropeless systems and any kind of other technology that could be a mitigation tool to address whale entanglement in vertical fish, fishing gear. So uh, I thought it was a, a very uh, exciting conference. There's a lot of energy, a, a tremendous amount of people thinking about this, working on it, and uh, it's, um, it, it, you know, there's, there's a real hope that it could be one of the suite of tools that could be used to help us um, address the whale entanglement issue and that it could have 
a lot of other additional benefits to to the fishing industry and helping them with the with the things that are important to them. Give some examples of how ropeless gear can help fishermen. Potentially, if you're marking the gear, right, and you have an acoustic system that can mark the gear on the ocean floor, and you can track all that gear on the ocean floor, that there would be much less chance of losing it. And how about safety? It could it could provide some measure of safety to fishermen. You know, as we know, sometimes fishermen get caught up in in rope on on the deck, and it it can result in them going overboard. Um, so, with some of these systems, they actually would remove a lot of rope from the deck. Um, so, it could be that they they could provide uh, increased safety. Um, and there's the idea that uh, without as much buoys in line at the surface, that maybe it would help with marine safety. That's Zach Cliver. We'll be talking with him again in the future, I'm sure. Now to Boat Talk, December 2012. It's time for Boat Talk, WRU's own uh, navally-oriented call-in show that barges right in every second Tuesday of the month. I'm Alan Sprague, here with Mike Joyce, and uh, also here with two special guests today, Steve Callahan and Art Payne, two men of great naval repute, who are going to belly up to the table here and give us some good sea stories. We what have you, an embarrassment of riches this morning, and we have a waitress server. We're being served tea now. Yeah, this is just a wonderful thing we're having here. <laughs> In-flight service right here. Oh, uh, we got Art. Art Payne's been uh, here a couple of times talking about ice boats and, and uh, the Bahamas. And uh, I was telling Alan and Art, sort of like a Giffy full rule, uh, we interviewed Giffy, and he had such a good time. Anytime he wants to come, he's welcome, and sort of Art's the same way. So we had nothing we wanted to talk about Art uh, with Art today, but you're welcome to... You know, just be here. Well, you know, I always like to talk about boats, and <clears throat> I've got a pretty good story, sea stories myself, so just wind me up. <laughs> <laughs> and the inspiration was uh, I got a hold of Steve Callahan, who's uh, just back from uh, the uh, south of the equator for a few years. And Steve uh, is, among other things, uh, the author of Adrift and Capsized. Steve, uh, from his uh, the back of his... Fifteen weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, a drift book on the night of January 29, 1982. Stephen Callahan set sail in a small sloop from the Canary Islands bound for the Caribbean. Thus began one of the most astounding voyages of the century and one of the great sea adventures of all time. The boat sank six days out. Steve was in a life raft for uh, 76 days, um, had a little solar still, ate, uh, f- figured out how to fish, Ate 12 Dorados, 12 triggerfish, four flying fish, three, uh, what were the little ones here, uh, buds, um, some barnacles, uh, saw nine ships, um, played with a dozen sharks, and, and went across the Atlantic Ocean from northwest Africa by the Canary Islands and ended up in the, in the far eastern Caribbean. Yep, and probably haven't learned anything since. Some people die quicker than others. Some people uh, have more of a will to fight. You know, is what I what I think I take from some of this, and uh, you know, the survivors are fighters. And you said in your book here, uh, after you were on uh, Marie Gallant was the uh, um, island in the Caribbean that you landed on there. Some people have started to call me the super fisherman or the Superman. I tried to explain to them that while I was adrift, I kept struggling to survive, not because I was heroic, 
but because it was the easiest thing for me to do, it was easier than dying. Yeah, for me it was actually. It's um, I, I don't know. I I have a obviously a pretty large collection of survival stories myself, and um, it's always been interesting to me. Even as a kid, I was reading a lot of uh, survival stories and uh, was fascinated by them. Um, but everybody talks about this kind of will to survive like it's something that's genetic. And I'm not sure maybe maybe there is some kind of genetic code that leads you towards one direction or the other. But one thing we do know is that you can improve people's chances of survival a great deal, that, it can, that a lot of these uh, strategies that people use that are successful um, can be taught. And it can also be taught not to use the strategies that are unsuccessful. So it's, I don't believe that it's something that's necessarily inherent, um, but we learn it. I, I grew up, I'm like art, you know, we bummed around boats our whole lives. You guys have too. And as you know, it's either, uh, it's, it's, it's either a disaster going on or something's happening and you have to deal with it with limited resources in an in a isolated environment. And uh, you do that for a while and it teaches you how to, on a pragmatic level, how to deal with, uh, with problems as they crop up. Um, so um, it's not a surprise that people in, um, in very big disasters who do well, especially in the early stages, are people like airline <clears throat> pilots and policemen and people who through their through their lives have have gotten used to dealing with uh, critical situations so um, i think i was in that camp i was just kind of fortunate i'd been bumming around boats enough that i knew some of the skills and um i was scared of dying quite simple your inventiveness uh was remarkable you uh, your raft was leaking and you would fix it with pieces of rope and little bits of wood mm-hmm. you made a uh, spear out of a fork for instance and and i had solar stills that were in uh, various states of decrepitness and and uh, functionality and and you made all and you made a sextant out of three pencils and navigated your way across you knew even knew where you were the whole time i mean i find mm-hmm. that a lot of that Fairly uh, high end. Well, more or less. I mean, I I, I often talk about being in the life raft, like um, basically reverting to an, an earlier era. It was like uh, learning to become a, an aquatic caveman, and uh, I just reverted back to um, uh, it was almost ancient ways of doing things at sea. And you know, back and before there was a chronometer. Uh, people who could still knew about the North Star and knew that it, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, the altitude of the North Star in degrees is pretty roughly close to close to your latitude. So they would just they would know the latitude of the port they were heading for, and they'd head north or south till they got on the right latitude and go east and west. So I was pretty much doing the same kind of thing. I mean, the pencils uh, or sextants virtually uh, just a fancy protractor to measure angles. So I just yeah. made a crude protractor and did the best I could with it. I, it wasn't that I could really guide myself that much. I could I could aid the drift of the raft one direction or the other, but uh, I had a very small amount of control. But I was worried about going too far north because uh, if I had gotten too far north, I would have been swept up beyond the islands, up past the Bahamas, and next yeah. stop England again. And it would have been <laughs> not seventy six days, but like seven hundred and sixty days. So uh, I was I was lucky. So how did how actually did you uh, divert the the raft? I had a piece of line trailing out the back um, with a man overboard pole that I'd grabbed off my boat at, uh, before I got so separated could, from you it. You could push the line to one side, or exactly, the other exactly, I, exactly, and kind of the the canopy, which is like a little tent that stretched over the top of the raft. I could, it's almost like a little square sail, so I could position that line. And and I also had um, 
a couple of paddles. So, yeah, I, I kept kept track of my drift, and I figured, oh, I'm doing all right. But it had I it, it had it looked like I was drifting too far north, I probably would have used the paddles too as kind of rudimentary right. center boards. The speed probably would be faster to the south too. Um, yeah, well, we, I was in the trades for, and, you know, everything, there's no situation that is purely good or purely bad. Yeah, yeah, everything is a mix. So get into the Sargasco Sea or something, you could be there for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I was, uh, luckily I was in the trades, so the, the unfortunate thing was that they were pushing me the longest distance I could possibly go without hitting land, but mm-hmm. the positive thing was that I was going pretty steady. I only spent one 24-hour period doing a 360-degree loop, otherwise it was dead, keep going west, 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 west. Yeah, well, just the fact that you were able to make a protractor and, and prove to yourself that you actually were making progress must have been a real uh, a psychological boost. Yeah, although there's, you know, there's you don't operate on like one level. There are all these different voices. In fact, a lot of the book of Adrift is about this tension that builds up between different parts of yourself that are vying for control and they have different needs, you know, your physical part and your emotional part and all that. So there was always this there was always this voice in the back of my head saying, um, you know, oh, yeah, you're doing all this stuff, but you fool. You don't have a freaking idea where you are, you know. And I really had no idea until the end, I, and especially towards the end the last couple of weeks because I kept thinking, oh, I must, you know, islands. I should have been at the islands, but they weren't there. So I, mm. I thought I'd really screwed up. What a killer doubt can be. Mm. Because yeah. the, you know, the psych thing is is really one of the prime survival tools you got going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. From uh, the only other thing we'll uh, bother from adrift today, it says, uh, if I could convey the true horror I felt at the time, nobody would want to read this story. <laughs> I have not said on every line that I was in pain and felt desperate. The experience was too bad to be boring at the time, but readers should keep in mind that much of the survival experience is repetitive and horrible at the same time, that it has its lighter, reflective, and instructive moments. And that's what I, my um, book review from adrift would be. I, uh, I always feel that we're 46 days out. And how you know it's like a Tuesday again on Groundhog Day or what you know it's uh, it's yeah, always day forty six, which is uh, you know uh, just a grind after forty five before you know, yep. and man it, it kind of gets to you after a while. I get I I would get worn out reading. Yeah yeah well you know as 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 you know you you read the book I I try to to focus on those elements that that make a good story of it um, that is the story of it that that um, that I drew from it that kind of made. I don't know. They, they tied it together and in, in, in gave me a reason for being for experiencing it, helping to deal with the trauma of it. Because basically, yeah, this, a survival experience is not a lot of fun. Uh, but you can, but as we know from doing sailing, sailing isn't always fun. And um, uh, the most rewarding things that I've found in in my life uh, have uh, involved a struggle. They have involved struggle, exactly. Uh, you got to, you got to. It's an unfortunate element, or maybe it's fortunate. I don't know, but it's it's an element of life that the the most rewarding things you have to pay for. Can we study? Have to have uh, that big joy without struggle? That's where that's where I'd want to go. I don't know. I think you can have fun, but I I separate it. I, I think there's a huge difference between fun and fulfillment. You know, fun's something great you can point. have you can have for a little while. Like you, you know, mm-hmm. go to go to a fair and have a, have a great deal of fun, and that's good. But that doesn't fill you up. It doesn't it doesn't carry you on like fulfillment does. And fulfillment comes from often from uh, like I say from uh, maybe a bit of suffering or a bit of giving or a bit of a bit of something that that. Uh, that, that requires something of you that isn't necessarily fun. Sharing it's important too, isn't it? Yeah, for me. I mean, for me, it was wonderful to have this opportunity to sh- to share the book and 
the story because there were a lot of things that I thought were were important. Much, I mean, the story is is not me. It's really much bigger than me. It's about the fish and about this amazing world we live in, and the fact that I was granted a life and and to have witnessed these things. And a lot of the the book was really I f- I felt compelled to share it not not just for that element, but also to speak for all those other people who um, have gone out there and not come back. I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure you, you guys I, uh, also know people who've who've gone to sea and not showed up ashore again. I After I came back from Adrift, there was somebody every year for about seven years in a row I knew who... Um, Disappear without just, trace. Well, not necessarily without trace, but, but somebody who got lost at sea. So. Yeah. You know, the, the book was really speaking not only for them, but people all over the world think about, you know, all what's been in the news the last, the last few weeks. And, and uh, you know, it's for all those people who don't have a voice. Yeah. Um, I was been poking through your book the last couple of days, and uh, uh, there's a interesting little parallel to uh, another friend of mine. Jeff uh, lost a boat down off of uh, Costa Rica, down that area. Spent seven days in a life raft and was rescued by native fishermen like you were, but um, he had a hard time convincing those fellows to take him aboard. They like a gringo mm-hmm. in a raft towing mm-hmm. a yellow kayak. What the hell, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah, <laughs> and they were working. <laughs> yeah. And when you uh, met your fishermen that, that rescued you, you had a herd of fish that came across the ocean with you and, and fed just some of your particular friends yeah. that you identified and. And you told them to fish, and they caught those fish and uh, threw them in the bottom of the boat and hauled y'all in. Yeah, well, it's a, a core a core of a drift that runs through the whole thing, or the Dorado, the school of fish that fed me, became my friends at one point, almost killed me, and in the in the end, brought my salvation. They really are symbolic of the magic and the mystery of the sea, and um, this and the magic of life, really, because in the in the final analysis, they, the birds were hovering over the raft because fish were there, and the, the Dorado eat flying fish, and so did the frigate birds. So when huh. frigates see Dorado, they hang around. The fishermen came out, saw the frigate birds, and being smart guys, they said, ooh, there are fish over there, came out and found me. And it just seemed to make sense. Uh, when they came out, I had saved some water, and I wasn't like... Pfft. You know, another few hours wasn't going to make a huge difference to me. So I, 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 uh, I don't know. It just felt right to have them fish, although I felt a bit like a, uh, a, a Judas, I guess, and giving up this, this um, my, my swimming buddies. But, um, Interesting. <laughs> but they thought, you know, everybody's coming across the Atlantic. And that, you know, there was a guy who came across in a modified barrel, a couple of French guys that sailed across in a Hobie cat. Uh, so they came and they saw me, and I think they had the same kind of reaction you're talking about, which is, what's this other weird white guy doing here on my island? You know, what's coming across in this thing? But they, they finally figured it out. Speaking of interesting uh, voyages, we talked to a fellow from Louisville, Kentucky, a couple months ago who's yeah. fixing up a school bus to go around the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's next? You've got, news, <laughs> you've, you've got news about him, don't you? Yeah, well, just a little quick brief update. I only went to the uh, website last night and checked out to see what his progress was. And, indeed, there's some, some new photo- photographs he did, uh, what he calls the, uh, the test float of the, uh, of the school bus. And backed it down in uh, a boat launch on the Mississippi River and had flotation tanks welded around it. It had uh, no engine or transmission or drive shaft, any sort of running gear. It was all, I guess, all those holes that they're going to have to go through were welded closed at the time. It did float uh, all right, he said, except for the front wheels were just barely touching. Now, whether you want to call that really floating or not. But the photographs were there, and then the... 
they hauled the uh, the uh, school bus back out again. So it was pretty uh, pretty much of a, a really non-event. It did it did float, but it came right back out again. Mark Rorig is his name. What's Mark the website? Rorig. Um, I went to schwimauto.de. That's the German website. Right. But it has the uh, the good photographs that are up to date. S C H W I M M A U T O dot D E. Um, he's in his schedule. He's still planning to do what he calls a, a sea trial in in March, in the beginning of March. Now, how you do a sea trial in Kentucky is a <laughs> <laughs> little bit of a date. Until I figured out, he was probably spelling it S E E to see if it works. <laughs> My uh, advice to him still stands. I say he uh, makes friends with a couple fishermen and comes uh, to the Gulf of Maine in November or February or some nice time and goes out there with those fishermen in some nasty weather. I think that is Stay the out there for a couple of days. If you like it, good. Mm-hmm. Have at it. If not, you've just uh, you know had your worst-case scenario, and now you don't have to do it anymore, and the fishermen yeah. will pull you back, and they'll be happy for the work. Well, it's uh, he has been doing a lot of work on the the, the boat itself. Is the interior pictures of bunks and uh, galley, and has a uh, a little porch like affair welded to the whole top roof that folds down for when he's when he's driving over the road, um, and it welded on the sort of a, a he, call, he calls it a bow on the front of the truck. It makes it makes the school bus look like a, a snowplow, but uh, he uh, will. Keep you, keep you posted on this guy, Mark Rogerig, and as whether he really does make it or not. It's amazing what people do. Uh, there's a whole other movement. Um, as a boat designer, I've, uh, I would think people like Art and Steve find micro boats very interesting. There's people that, that have designed these five-foot capsules that they sail across the Atlantic. Yeah. Trying. There were two guys uh, fitting out in Newfoundland, and one guy's boat was like three inches shorter than the other, and that guy was like, damn, i got to cut six inches off. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually designed a small boat, but it was thirteen. It was twelve feet, twelve feet, thirteen feet. Can't remember which to to sit to sail off. But our idea was to actually build a real boat that actually sailed, and it did sail. It averaged over ninety miles a day offshore. Most of these things are just like buoys that basically are drifting. I think some of the some of these voyages, in fact. Uh, and these microboats have, have averaged no more than what I average in a life raft, so I'm not sure if they're yeah. really boats. Or, uh, there's, there's this fine line between stuntmanship and doing something that's an adventure and worthwhile, and I'm not sure where that is. I, I, I love it all, but uh, I, I guess I'm a little bit more into let's do something interesting that's functional and not quite so much something just to set a record. I don't think records are all that, yeah. all that important. Speaking of boat design, and the boat that you uh, uh, lost in the Adrift story there was called Napoleon Solo. It was a 21-foot uh, cold-molded, kind of flush, an interesting-looking boat, flush-decked uh, um, higher in the front, and then with a step down where the cockpit. And, yeah, it was kind um, of a, yeah, it was a raised, raised deck. And had an aft, uh, your cabin was underneath the cockpit? The cabin ran through the whole boat. It had a, the cockpit itself was kind of a flush, flush affair. I'd sit out on deck in, a, in kind of a, a, a sling seat, if you will, during good weather and had an inside steering position. So any bad weather, I'd be, in, I'd be on the inside of the boat. It had a jet-like canopy over it, and I could reach all the controls from in there. As a matter of fact, I just finished uh, designing a new, kind of a new version of, right. that, of that boat. Tell us about so, it. Uh, it's a, pretty much the same idea. There's a guy on in, in the West Coast who wants to sail the Pacific, so... We um, he he wanted to buy plans for that boat. I told him no. It was a modern boat twenty years ago, and modern boats have changed a lot. So we decided to approach the boat a little bit differently. It's almost like the old boat dropped into a, a new, wider, deeper 
heavier, more powerful boat. This this boat has a lot more Changed power. Changed the hull energy. form. Hull form is very different. Um, it's not quite what was now often termed an open style boat, like are sailed in the you know single handed round the world races and those sorts of things. But it's not uh, Napoleon Solo. The boat I lost was uh, was fairly narrow, really well balanced, but it was narrow and it was tender. And so we've given them a, something in between the two. This one more of a U than a V, if you looked at it, cut it in half in the middle. Uh, very well. It's pretty pretty beamy. It's yeah. It's it's not it's not V. No, Solo wasn't really V either. But it's just it's just beamier. It's another foot and a half wider, and it's another foot deeper, and it's got more ballast. It's about another five hundred pound, five hundred to eight hundred pounds heavier. So, and he's gonna, who's going to build it? He's going to build it. He's built boats before when he was a, when he was a youth. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he should know better. <laughs> yeah, I know, really. That's what I told him. But, you know, he, you well, know one people question, gonna, Steve, that I, that I yeah. have is why would a person go through all the trouble of commissioning a design, paying for it, building a boat, um, and elect a really small boat? I mean, all of us have been to sea, and mm-hmm. I think we pretty much agree that up to a certain point, bigger is better. Um, when you get out in the big waves, it's mm-hmm. really useful to have a bigger boat. And, uh, yes, it's true that if you're single-handing, you only want to handle so much sail area and you only want to drive so much displacement. But why would a person opt? I'd opt for the biggest boat I figure physically yeah. I could handle. I don't know. I guess I come from it actually in an opposite way. I've always loved little boats. And um, I think that you can do, in terms of bang for the buck, you can do a lot more with a little boat. Napoleon Solo, the boat I lost, actually, looking back now, now I've crossed, I've crossed oceans and everything from a life raft, six-foot life raft, and the 21-foot solo to 67-foot boat. And I, would, and I think that solo was by far the best cruising boat I've ever had. I, I could go places no other boat could go. I could sail in and out of marinas. I, could, I, I reached ports that nobody else could get into. Um, everything was handleable. I mean, you know, there's uh, this guy, Sven Ludin, who's, oh, yeah. who's made quite a reputation over many decades sailing small boats. And he has this, uh, this little adage, you know, big boats, big problems, small boats, small problems. And that's absolutely true. All the forces, you get kicked around a lot. Like John, um, um, John Guswell, who sailed around the world back in, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s, in a small boat called Trekka. Um, I met in um, when we had built Solo, and he said, you know, I'd, I'm just getting too old for that. I'm getting, you know, you get bounced around too much, and you do get bounced around, but if you assume that you're going to get bounced around, kind of design the boat around that, that's one of the worst things that can happen. Whereas a big boat, you know, something blows, and it, the forces are so huge compared to you that, that people get hurt from that. So I, I think it's a, it's a balance. Definitely the bigger boat is more comfortable as long as everything is working. And... And you're in big seas, but the rest of the time, in moderate conditions, I don't find it actually even all that all that much different. But you know, you don't have room for the wine cellar. So yeah, well, I think <laughs> I think more about the big seas aspect. The fact of the matter is that most everyone could buy and own a boat that's small and go to sea. And summer times, most right. days, go to, here to Bermuda, you don't see right. anything that bad. But and personally, as many miles as I've done, I've been in a gale, but I've never actually been in what the weather bureau calls a storm. And I don't think I really would want to. And but if I were, I'd want to be in a pretty big boat, snug down, you know, with some storm sail that that has a motion I can stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's everything's a balance. I mean, with solo, like all the boats that 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 I do, I pay a lot of attention to things like um, the riding curve. So I mean, we I assume 
I automatically assume that any boat I've known of 60 footers that got dumped on their on their top. So um, my presumption is that anytime you go offshore, you got to think about all these eventualities. And so for the boat that we've just redesigned, for instance, there's a almost an entire outer hull. I'd say it even has more damage protection than Solo did. There's very, virtually no part of the interior that's open straight to the outside of the hull. Everything can be partitioned off. And it has a very good riding profile, So, because I'm presuming at some point the boat may get dumped sure. on its top, and we want it to come right side up again. Well, Steve and I, you know, we, we're both amateur. Well, he's more of a professional than I am, because... I don't, oh, don't always <laughs> don't always ask to get paid at designing at designing. Yeah. But uh, my dream, as he knows, and it's somewhat based on reading his his book. And and I knew Mike Plant, and uh, you know I had mm-hmm. a design and built Air Force, which sank. No, you know, no loss of life or anything. But that was the end of a dream for a lot of people. And my the one last thing I want to do as a boat designer. It, well, two things. I want to design a an unsinkable sailboat, which we have the technology and the materials for. There's no reason any longer why a family has to go out to sea in something where if you blow a hose or anything can happen. You know, the mask can go over the side, mm-hmm. punch a There's just no no reason at all, actually, if you change your mindset as to what the boat is. You can't do this in a yacht. A yacht's too heavy. It's got too many embellishments. But if there is a type of boat that could be easily designed that simply can't sink, um, it's built on the surfboard, and like a surfboard, even if the surfboard portion broke in half, both halves would float. This is entirely doable. The other thing I want to design before I really give it up is a containerable, container shippable boat so that people, I mean, young people don't, they don't go cruising so much anymore because mm-hmm. they need to keep their health insurance, they need to keep their jobs, they need to keep them on the track. So I go to the Bahamas, and the people who are cruising, unlike the old days, are all retired people. Mm-hmm. Um, because the young people are keeping their nose to the grindstone in some job. Well, you know, a ship could be moving there in a 40-foot container, could be moving their cruising boat, Send doing the part their wife doesn't want to do or they don't want to do anyway because they get seasick, let the ship we deliver it there. a powerboat or sailboat? Well, actually, that design would be actually a motor sailor. Mm-hmm. So is, a 40-foot mast or 38 or whatever would fit inside. It would have several masts, yeah. but, yeah. Huh. One of the things that attracted me to sailing to start with was that it was so diverse that the skills to become a good sailor, and I can't say that I'm there yet, um, require you to really be familiar with so many different things. I mean, astronomy, uh, uh, meteorology, uh, fluid dynamics, I mean, you name it, uh, electronics, everything is involved. I'm not, I, I personally believe you can reach the entire universe by contemplating your navel, but on the other hand, uh, boats are a great way of, of reaching out and learning about the entire, the entire world. And to have this idea of, oh, well, we want it just to be easy to sit down, you know, like, just like driving a car, you just get in and you drive off. Well, I have seen firsthand how many people have gotten into trouble from that. And that's been a trend uh, of cruising. Um, whereas instead of p- paying attention to basics about um, the world and learning about the world, people just buy as big a boat as they can uh, with as much gear as they can, and they go off sailing. And I think that may be one reason why what, what Art's saying. Um, I have noticed this in particular, that there's been a paucity of of um, young people out cruising. When I was out doing it, when I was in my 20s and 30s, you know, there were a lot of us, probably half of us were young people who had 
two nickels to rub together, maybe, who had usually built their own boat and were out there adventuring. And now it seems that there's this perception that you have to have this big, complicated boat uh, that you can get on with very little knowledge and you go running off. And I've seen, I can, I, I can, I could tell you stories all day long about people who have lost their dreams by, by approaching the sea in that, in that way. When you left the Canary Islands, you, uh, basically didn't have money, beer money, I don't think. No, and I didn't. we're headed for the Caribbean thinking, yeah. hey, I'll find something to do when I get over there in the boat line. And you probably would have. Yeah, I had, I had friends in the Caribbean who had boat yards and stuff. I always figured, figured I could whack together a living somehow. I had enough food on the boat to get there. So that was that. There were so approach. many people like that. I mean, I lived on Mount Zero. That's Island. an American right there. <laughs> it's the way the America was. Not yeah. so long. Get up right. and go to work. That's right. You know, spend exactly. more than you earn. Come on now. Well, here I'm going to pontificate. I think one of the problems... Please do. ...is that one of the reasons that you don't see as many young people and you see more retired people... Well, two reasons. And one is this feeling that we need to have health insurance. And the other is the high cost of a house. Um... When we, when I first started going to the Caribbean, either delivering boats, well, the first time I went, I flew down there, and I did not have enough money to fly back. I figure I'm going to go. I'm going to land on, at the airport on St. Thomas, and one way or another, you know, if I become an indentured servant to someone, it's the only way I'm ever going to either fly or sail mm-hmm. home. And I ended up getting a job at a place called Avery's Boathouse with a fellow down there who started bareboat chartering, and I made money. But I was... Footloose, but I didn't need or want or even think about any kind of insurance, house or anything else, or you know, health insurance. And it, I couldn't even imagine owning a house, but if I did, it wasn't going to cost much. Now the average house is $200,000, and that's why I think that fewer people are footloose because they really can't afford to get off the gravy train. Yeah, I guess in, 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 in our era, we weren't even thinking of houses. Didn't you know what I mean? You know, we didn't mind living in a tent, you know. So I don't know. It's, it, I think you're right, though. I think people are focused in a totally different way. The whole society is. I mean, we've noticed that. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time working with uh, Cruising World magazine and, you know, the, the whole cruising scene has changed so much since that magazine started. When it started in, oh, I think, mid-1970s. And, and that was an era where there was a big dream about seasteading, as a friend Jim Brown calls it, um, where, you know, the whole idea was while people were going back to the land, people were also going back to the sea, and they were living in fairly simply on boats. And that dream has changed now. People, you know, want to keep their kids in private schools, and they want to... Uh, have their portfolios, and they want to have this, and they want to have that, and they want to use sailing in a different way. Now, the, now the dream is more to take you know two, three weeks of uh, of vacation cruising, and maybe sometime during your life take a year or two off and do what I call sabbatical cruising. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's the focus has really changed. Mm-hmm. We have a phone call. A reminder again: this is a pre-recorded show, and no phone calls can be taken at this time. Why do you say we uh, go to the caller and see uh, what's on your mind? Good morning and welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, it's John from East Holden calling to thank Steve for writing the book. Good morning, John. Um, I uh, started it late one night and read it cover to cover until whatever it was, three or four in the morning, enjoyed it very much. John, do you know about about Steve's other book? Steve no. wrote, uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we just done you a favor. Yeah. Steve wrote another book called Capsized. Ah. The cover's on Upside Down. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> uh, the other comment I'd like to make is that it seems to me, if I remember right, Steve helped himself to a lot of his luck by uh, providing a lot of um, good stuff in that life raft. Yeah, that's that's generally true. I guess I had a pretty pretty good um, setup for that era. There was a lot better equipment available now, but some people thought, for example, that I was completely mad for carrying a six man life raft when I was single handed. And a one man boat. boat. And that was just about big enough for me. I mean, yeah. the, the the reality of of life rafts, of course, is that um, uh, according to to um, international regulations, for them to be approved by Solus or U.S. Coast Guard, you're you're allowed four square feet per person, which means that if you actually get in one with the the full complement, you're literally on top of one another. So yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I had that and. I had a pretty good jitch kit, in part because um, I'd, I'd at least knocked around enough to to have known other, uh, not, not only to have read lots of stories and been aware of the real risks, but also to have known people firsthand who had been in pretty dicey situations before. So, um, yeah, I had a water makers and various other things. So I, I, I was, but I still think I was pretty pretty lucky, frankly. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, synopsize capsized uh, for John here? Uh, capsize is just, uh, another disaster story. I'm Mr. Disaster, I guess. Um, uh, it was about four men who were uh, took off from New Zealand, north end of uh, South Island, and uh, in the wintertime, and were headed to Tonga, and they got out uh, and got into a big blow, and basically the boat got flipped over on the top, and they spent four months uh, living in a half-flooded boat upside down and spending about 90% of their time in the cave, as we called it, which was a little area under the cockpit that gave them about the space of uh, a double bed with about 18 inches of headroom, and four men lived that in that together. So you can imagine the uh, the kind well, of human drama that played with out. With some severe kind of personality problems. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, a lot of conflict. Um, they had conflicts with one another like I had conflicts within myself, but they finally learned to... Uh-huh. Learned to use each other and uh, and ended up actually drifting back to New Zealand, which wasn't supposed to happen, and uh, crashed on Great Barrier Island. And then after they got through with this whole ordeal, then they then they had the great joy of facing uh, a, a public that first uh, uh, lauded them for being great heroes, and then within about two weeks, recalling them them uh, uh, frauds. Uh, so it took a, took a lot of government inquiry and so on to 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 basically verify their story. There's another good read for you, John. Okay. Good. Thanks a lot. Thank you for Thank that you. phone call. And we do have another phone call, too. Let's go right to that one. Good morning, and welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. This is Fred in Tenants Harbor. Hi, Fred. I'm uh, just wondering uh, what uh, is going on with Raw Faith. I have followed them with interest, <laughs> seen the boat close up, and talked with one of the crew. And uh, I wish them luck. And uh, um, so uh, what's going on with them? Uh, let's back up. To, uh, tell us about uh, talking with one of the crew. Who was that now? Uh, he was a guy who was in a big accident and uh, to, uh, became a... Uh, oh, the guy, the, the uh, sort of the first mate there, the executive officer, Charles, who had uh, a brain injury at one point. Right, right. Now no longer with the boat and uh, left under, uh, you know, not happy circumstances, mm, really. Wow. More, pe- more people problems. Yeah, well, when I saw the boat close up, I just looked at the steering gear, and it uh, looked uh, looked like something I'd do for uh, for a la- boat on the lake, and uh, I guess so. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, I'm somewhat of a do-it-yourselfer, and so it, being that boat being a hundred feet long, wow, what a project! But uh, also the forces. You, oh, you talked about the forces on a big boat. 
And of course, uh, you know, the forces on that thing in a blow are tremendous. And you've got to have damping, damping gear and all that if you're going to survive. I was uh, down to Rockland last Wednesday, and I brought a dinghy with me, and I thought about rowing out there, but I kind of looked at it, and it was late in the afternoon, didn't feel right. She's moored in Rockland, uh, fairways out in the harbor there, and, and uh, just sitting there, and, and you imagine the problem that they have. Uh, George and his son, uh, Bobby, are trying to live aboard this winter. They've got a small uh, dinghy. They've lost their push boat with the outboard, and uh, they got to get water out there, firewood, uh, you know. Not an easy life. Uh, not to mention that when Raw Faith uh, first came to town, um, it was fairly welcomed, and mm-hmm. those relations have gone south. Yeah. To put it mildly, and um, you know, so there we have that boat, and we were talking about this earlier. The, um, in my view, it takes a certain kind of person to build a boat like that, and we were recalling earlier uh, Ned Ackerman from the John F. Levitt, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Dick Cross from Air Force. Okay, these were all people that came to town to build boats and sort of a uh, uh, frictioned, shall we say, chafed the people around them a little bit. <laughs> I, I have to stand up for Dick Cross. Dick Cross was one of the most likable human beings on earth. I don't think he. After the boat sank, there was some chafing, but that's true. Yeah, good you know, point. he was a wonderful person, and and through it all, he and I, you know, uh, I designed the boat and helped build it and put some money into it even and uh it uh it didn't do my career any good but um he and i are now again the best of friends he showed up on the phone one day eight years afterwards and called me from san diego and and uh we didn't even talk about the boat we just talked about the future and laid that behind us Uh, that was built in the what's now the post office down to southwest harbor yep yeah so anyway it's a it's partly a boat problem and partly a people problem and the way I look at the uh, boat problem, it ain't going to go away. Um, it's actually, the hull is a big, good, solid thing. It can be rigged, to be, it can be made to sail better. Um, that's the first problem. Then George has to learn how to sail it. Fine. Sounds to me, I don't know, you, got, you, you guys know a lot more about this story, and I'm quite interested in it, uh, that he's so far been kind of unwilling to, to, to go take that next step, which is to say, okay, well, fine, the first plan didn't quite work out, but... Um, what, what do I do now in order to, to, to make this fit with reality? Well, he is going on a very, very limited budget, and I think he's very reluctant to just throw this up in the air and say, whoops, well, let's try that again and just cash in. Um, I, I could visualize this boat being as funky and big as it is being bought by uh, some movie producing company or something, make it into <laughs> something. What a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> the new version of Mutiny on the Bounty. Yeah. yeah, and just take the money from that to make something, as Steve is saying, something a little a bit. Pirate. More, well, the fact of the matter well is. Well designed. The, the, the only thing that frustrates me about the Raw Faith thing is I, I think there's a lot of people who. <clears throat> I mean, I, I listened to the program last week and it got me all upset. Well, last time, and uh, there was acrimony, obviously, there, and, and I thought, well, where does that come from? And I looked up the website, and, and I thought, you know, good on you for trying to do this. And there's nothing, the man really wants to do some good in the world, and he's taken virtually all of his money, I guess, and, and sunk it into this one dream, and I just felt awfully bad that it, you know, it had engendered bad feelings on a lot of the callers' parts, and uh, 
I just wonder if some of us aren't jealous. You know, I, I wonder if I wouldn't like to quit my job, stop stop showing up at 6 in the morning, punching a clock, and do the same thing. And the only reason I might disparage is the linkage on his steering gear is I wish heck I could do the same thing, and for good purposes, too. It's been a life-altering uh, thing for George. There's no, no ifs, ands, and buts about that. Um, now, here's the part that we were talking about this earlier. Some of the best stories are... Uh, or some of the best parts to stories are the people parts, but they're the trickiest and uh, most dangerous parts to approach, you know. Mm. So the reason I'm, I'm bold enough to come out with this is it's right on the website, rawfaith.org or uh, accessiblesailing.info. Um, George wrote a letter there where he talked about how difficult it was for him to impoverish his family, basically uh, pursuing this goal, uh, a, a call from God. Um, you know, is, is uh, he's on a mission from God. Talks about a lady who wrote him a uh, check for $28.40 or something, the balance of her checking account, and how hard it was to accept that. But he makes himself do it because he's on a mission. At the same time, and here's the thing that I think is the heaviest thing um, weighing on George. Um, he says right on the, on the uh, website there, and he has fears that he is failing his family. Is there right. anything heavier than that? Well, there could be if he uh, if he does carry out his mission and has handicapped people on this boat, without no way he's going to be able to get insurance without having a Coast Guard certified. I would think his liability would be tremendous. So yeah, he could get even worse. I think. Well, what I'm saying is when you uh, you know there was some uh, contention last time. There was some uh, raised voices. There was a shut up in there, and there was a. You know, uh, some defensiveness and stuff. And again, I, I, I comes back to what I think I just brought up. And I think that sort of has to be kept in view the whole time. We do have another phone call or two. Uh, Thanks. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, let's go to the next phone call. Good morning and welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah, good morning. This is Mark up in Harrington. Hi, Mark. I um, worked across the street uh, for about a year um, from George McKay while he was building his boat up there. And um, anyway, I'm not, I don't want to comment on uh, on that, except, uh, you know, I have tremendous respect for the family and their dream and their persistence. Uh, but I'm wondering if you're aware of the fact that um, right next to that was being built the uh, Mariah. Yeah, a schooner that a fellow had started and it was been sitting for years, hadn't it? Yeah, it is. And I guess I'm just uh, trying to give some air time or make a plug for it. Um, Unfortunately, Dino passed away and uh, didn't complete it. But it's um, you know there's a lot of equity there. It's um, it's quite a boat, very ruggedly framed, and um, I'm sure his widow would like to see it completed. You know, and uh, interesting. Yeah, it's uh, still sitting right there on the South Pleasant River. Yeah, and every time I look at it, I wish I had uh, you know time left in my life to see it through. But uh, it's certainly some somebody or some institution. Uh, you know, would do well to pick it up and... Um, and I believe it's designed as a schooner. I believe it's got a Chinese diesel in it already. It's uh, got two two Chinese diesels right, in it, yeah. Right. And I don't, you know, I don't know the terminology, but um, it's decked over, and the, uh, what are the first planks up there they're on? The garbards, first plank up from the keel. Well, it's no, in the 60, 60-odd foot range, isn't it? Yeah, 65 yeah. foot. Um, and, um, oh, um, anyway... Um, I just like to give it some air time, and uh, certainly it's it's well worth somebody's taking over and finishing. And uh, I'm sure the widow would love to see that uh, completed. 
I had a nice crawl over that with George one day and uh, when we were down there chatting, and it is an interesting-looking project that just... One of those boat projects. There's more, a couple of them out there. Uh, I could point out a couple personally that yeah, know, really been lingering for a while. Yeah, yeah really. Obviously. Yeah, the we're, we're getting back the to a, and the and the dream uh, often outlive the uh, dreamer. We're That's getting back to a Steve's philosophy of this the small boat thing. So yep. uh, yes, yeah, uh, it's actually how I started my career. You know, was. Uh, I got out of school, there were very few jobs, and I helped a guy build a boat when I was in high school. And so basically I spent the next five years running around the country uh, helping people with their, their home-built home boats because oh. <laughs> inevitably everybody would look at the plans and go, oh, well, that's a 35-footer. Well, well, that that's so much nicer than the 30-footer, and it's only five feet yeah. more or whatever. <laughs> and everybody inevitably took, took right. too big a project. The exponential factor, yes. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things to say around a boat. It's only that long and that wide. How much trouble could it be? <laughs> you got to <laughs> knock on your wooden head after you say yeah. that. We do have some, I, some more I phone calls. I built a, uh, uh, oh, uh, Harold Payson's uh, little cat boat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, started it, and uh, it ended up being a year's obsession. And, uh, you know, the missus uh, ended up calling it, uh, you know, the, the bleep boat. <laughs> but I can understand, you know, you get you get sucked into those dreams, and you can't get out of them, you know. So, anyway, yeah, that the Mariah up there, um, I'd sure like to see some interest in it. Interesting. Thanks for All your right. call. We'll uh, see if we can follow up on that for, uh, okay. for next show. Thank you for that call. Thank you. And we have another one. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah, Steve up in Southwest Harbor. Hi, Steve. Hi. I just just listened, enjoying the show. I listened to the raw faith thing uh, last month, and first of all, I listen to you guys talk about going on boats right out of school. I mean, I graduated from Ivy League school and straight away went down to Camden and worked for room and board six days a week rebuilding a schooner. But the difference was in that job versus what's happened with raw faith was. These are people that had they'd gone out, they wanted to build a schooner, they wanted to rebuild a boat, put it in the business down in Camden, actually in Rockland. Um, they went about it by learning from other people. They sailed on other boats. Um, they were working. I mean, we got there was a question at times on how many sandwiches you could have for lunch because they were that tight for money. And yet they made that boat go. They made a business out of it, uh, ran it successfully for years, sold it, and, and did quite well with it. And they're not the only ones. The North End Shipyard crowd, uh, uh, John Linda Lee and John Foss, uh, Doug and Linda Lee and John Foss did the same thing. You know, eating uh, uh, macaroni and cheese and all the rest of the stuff just to get a boat into the business. And I can understand uh, George McKay's problem and his frustration, but uh, this is not, uh, you know, it's not just going for a walk down the street. This is building a boat that's going to have to withstand being on the water, being in rough conditions, uh, being in unexpected conditions, and you don't just go out and just start doing that. Uh, if you do, you get what he got, I'm afraid. But anyways, that's my two cents worth of what it's worth. All right. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. We'll see you later. Okay. See you next time. Yeah, well, I just wanted to, to put in a little plug for Doug and Linda Lee, and, and I think there's a philosophy about boat design. To me, um, as I say, I don't do it too much anymore, but occasionally I, I work as a consultant, and my aspect of things is aesthetic. I'll work for my twin brother and help him flesh out what a boat's going to look like very first few drawings because the look of a boat is, is a very, very important thing. And, and I think there's a contrast between what Doug and Linda Lee did, which just blew my mind when I first saw it, not that only that basically husband and wife and a few helpers 
were able to build a big schooner, but that the aesthetics, heritage, yeah. the aesthetics of heritage boat. was almost perfect. And it's a judgment call, and I'm, you know, after the storm, the people came and said that that the raw faith handled it like a lady, but aesthetically, um, <laughs> I don't think she's that pretty, and I think that prettiness is a tremendous asset in any boat, particularly when you're looking for to make it into a business. I think, that, for instance, with Air Force, Dick Cross didn't have any money either, and, but, and I don't blow my own horn, but it was a pretty boat, and it helped him a lot in terms of getting money. You know, Raw Faith, in my opinion, isn't quite as, isn't as pretty, and, and it's probably holding her back. Oh, yeah, so we've had it described as a pirate ship already. So, If you're interested in the whole Maine schooner thing, the current issue of Wooden Boat Magazine has a wonderful article on the Maine schooners. Uh, got a picture of Captain Brenda, who we talked with last week, my, last month, among the other people, and uh, uh, the Lees and uh, John Foss and everybody. It's a great story, and also on the front cover of that, it's a ice boat story by Bill Bunting, and uh, we hope to get him here at some point, too. So I highly recommend the new issue of Wooden Boat in that regard. we got another call, apparently? Yes, we do. We have another call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, Alan. This is Howard calling. Hi, Howard. Just a compliment to Boat Talk. And uh, the last uh, month's show, I found myself at the dump, and I couldn't get out of the truck just to finish it off. <laughs> and, yes, uh, that's trash it, talking, isn't it? No, it is. <laughs> I did finish it, then I called the uh, captain of the Isaac Evans just to compliment her on her call. It was a very testy show, but I think you guys have uh, really rounded it out quite well. And, uh, you know, the best of luck to Raw Faith and so on and so forth. But the other morning I had a shock. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I realized it was just a dream, and I was glad for that because I said, oh, Oh, excuse me. I found myself driving south of Portland. I might have been in Massachusetts, but I realized it was Tuesday, and I said, I'm going to miss boat talk. And uh, it was just one thing. We woke up went through it. But yesterday, my wife asked me to uh, get a copy of Adrift for Steve Callahan. She wants to uh, uh, use it in an elementary school over in Belfast. And I was wondering if Steve did any uh, kind of uh, lectures in the area where, you know, he's up in Ellsworth and so on and so there forth, or would meet with elementary school, school, school students who are interested. And what, how many tens of thousands of dollars would that cost to get you there? Oh, oh you can't afford it, no. <laughs> um, actually, as it, as it so happens, somebody from Belfast called me a couple of months ago yep. about coming down to speak to, at a school. Maybe it was your wife. I don't, I can't re- I don't, I don't remember now. Um, okay. And I, I, I do, on occasion, uh, go talk about Adrift. It's, uh, it varies a lot. I've done it for corporations and gotten paid big bucks, and I've done it for free for, for local schools. It's, it's all over the map. It, just depend, it depends on the situation. But I, I do do talk to kids. In fact, it's been very fulfilling for me to have the book. Uh, it's actually given the book a whole separate life because it's used by by kids. Kids as young as ten years old read it, and I'm amazed. Uh, yep. And they've often asked the most perceptive questions of me of anyone, including huh. adults, because there's no holding kids back, as you yeah. know. You know, yep. they'll just ask anything. Yeah, so it's, it's been a, g- a great pleasure to talk to kids. Yeah, this is at the new Captain George Stevens School in Belfast. So uh, mm-hmm. we'll follow up on that. But, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time on the air. It's much appreciated. Steve, what, you, you what is your uh, contact uh, number, website, whatever? Oh, I don't have a website yet. I'm mm-hmm. kind of working on one. Um, I have a phone number. It's uh, 207-664-0939. Great. Well, we got just about three or four minutes left in Botox. Uh, Got anything we want to spew out before we say goodbye for next month? You're talking to me. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd actually like to hear some. Uh, Art's talking about uh, building a studio in his house. Oh, and yes. I don't know. Maybe you guys have talked about this before, but well, I've, I, I've known Art for a long time, and I've seen, watched his uh, his career in painting and photography grow and grow. And he's he's a tremendous photographer and and painter, brilliant painter. I've even me, cheap old me, bought a couple of his paintings. So uh, that tells you something. So I want to hear what he, what he's doing. Well, uh, both of you haven't. You've both made uh, good work at writing, and uh, you know you you drew the illustrations for your, bo- for your book. Obviously mm-hmm. talented, and, and uh, Art's a painter and author and designer and Renaissance man. So what are you doing down in Bernard? You the Wizard of Bernard. So I'm doing it. I'm putting the last edition according to my wife. She says it's the last as she leaves <laughs> onto my house, and it looks right down on the on the harbor, and it it'll be my painting studio. Great. Um, painting oils or acrylics? Oils. Oils. Yeah, marine paintings. And marine paintings. You still doing the Bahama the Bahama theme, or are you I'll doing never get over too? it. I'll yeah. I just got involved with the Bermuda Sloop Association. Now they're building. You know, Rockport Marines building. We should have a show on that. They're building two replica boats side by side. Right. Actually, let's just do a show on it. It's there you go. Pretty interesting. Okay. Uh, we're getting the two-minute sign here. Um, let's see. Well, well actually, I'm, I'm curious about this, the Bermuda Sloop. Now, you're not talking about the fitted dinghies. No, no, they're, they're, different. they're moribund at this point. But, no, they're building a school ship, three-masted, 88-foot on deck, 110-foot overall um, traditional vessel based on a 1937 painting by a man named John Lynn. And I did an article for Main Boats and Harbors in which I... I uh, made the point that without that painting, that ship never would have existed. There's the power of marine painting. Mm-hmm. It inspired something 100 years on that's mm-hmm. worth $4 million. Bucks. Are wow. you going to the Bahamas this winter for the Oat Island Regatta? Yeah. yeah. When, will, when, will, when will you be down there? We want to live vicariously. End of April. All right, then. Yeah, I'll, I'll drink a rum for you. <laughs> <laughs> have a couple. Yeah. Well, I think it's just about time uh, to uh, say goodbye for Boat Talk for this week. We'd like to quick say a, uh, goodbye to John Babcock, who... Uh, we uh, we should have uh, done it at the first. I'd like to dedicate this issue of Boat Talk to John. Um, enjoyed uh, having him follow us. Yeah. And yeah. the thing that you don't realize about John, you can't see in the radio, John had muscular dystrophies in a wheelchair. And he has a personal assistant, and he has a stick that he pushes the buttons with. And it's quite a thing to go in there afterwards and visit with him while he and Jeff are trying to get the whole thing sorted out and to chat. And John, just a wonderful person. And one of the things I really enjoyed was Alan started, uh, he keeps calling me handsome for some reason. And he'd always, at the end, he, he tagged John with uh, Johnny Too Bad Babcock. Stay yeah, tuned. And John would grin like a fool when he'd say that. He liked that tag. Yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, we miss him. All right. Goodbye, John. I used to buy the pitch division, take some home to Lizer.